So good to see you here tonight. God blessed us with a wonderful day Sunday, didn't he? Just the, the time to be uh, fellowshipping and outside, and the weather was perfect, and the food was perfect. Thank you so much, everybody, that helped. It took everybody helping to, to make it such a wonderful day. But we're going to continue our series on the book of Philippians. We just started it last, uh, last Wednesday, and we kind of gave an overview or an introduction I want to actually begin by reading in 2 Corinthians 4.18, and then you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. It says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is a spiritual truth. This is a wonderful truth from the Word of God. This is something that, as believers, our eyes have been opened to this truth, but we need to be reminded of it. We need to tell ourselves that, and we need to actually practice that while we look, it says. Not, not while we believe it to be so, but while we look at, not at the things which are seen. Everything around us that's seen is going to pass away. It's going to pass away. I'm not saying it's worthless. I'm saying it's going to pass away. It's not eternal. It's not of eternal value. And so many times we spend our lives uh, working for the things that are not going to last. And I'm guilty of it as much as anyone. But we need to continually remind ourselves by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, to look at the things which are not seen because the things that are seen are temporal or temporary. The things that are not seen are eternal. That has to do with what we're looking at in Philippians. If you would turn there to Philippians chapter 1. Now, I gave an overview last week, and if just to refresh our memories, a theme, a major theme of this book, there's more than one, but I think almost everyone that I've studied and every time I've studied it and heard it taught myself, a major theme of Philippians would be joy. But not just joy um, because everything's going great, joy at all times. It talk, the Bible talks about, in, in this book, in these four chapters of Philippians, it talks about rejoicing always, and it talks about rejoicing in all things. And that takes some doing. That takes a work of the Lord. That is not natural. It is not simply happiness, as we've talked about. It's a joy. But even beyond that, the joy, uh, the, uh, another theme, I guess it would go with the joy, is, is that the believer should look to things that are eternal. We should disregard the things of this earth and count all things loss in order to have Christ. And that's when we get to chapter 3, when it talks about that I may know, Paul says that I may know him, right? And I, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, uh, my Lord and Savior. And so the joy to me goes with that because the joy is deeper. The joy is, has a foundation and a basis that's not temporal, it's eternal. And no matter what happens to us, no matter what comes our way, not that we're looking for a lot of trouble and heartache, but no matter what comes our way, we have a joy that is abiding and is from the Lord and and it's not based on our circumstances and situations. And so as New Testament believers, we need to remember 
a few things. We need to remember that we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. And we're both of those, the Bible says. And you think it's the same thing, basically, but they're really not. They both apply to the, the New Testament believer on this planet, though. We're strangers in the sense that you look that word up, it means we're aliens. We're not from here. We're, we're from another world. Doesn't Jesus say you're, we're in the world but not of the world? He says, you're not of the world even as I'm not of the world, Jesus said. So the same thing that made Jesus different is Christ in us that makes us different from the world. We're not we're going to be a square peg trying to fit in a round hole if we try to simply conform to the world and say, I don't get it. I'm, I'm trying to be a Christian and, and you know, people are, don't like me or people hate me or people misunderstand me. Well, they're blinded. They're lost. They're in sin. Their eyes can be opened through the gospel and the Lord Jesus can open their, their eyes and hearts to see. But uh, we're, str- we're strangers here. We're strangers and a real Christian and a real, I would even say an Old Testament saint that lived fully for God in the midst of a world. Noah must have been a stranger to the people, his acquaintances that were around him. We're strangers and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a reality. It is what it is. I'm glad I know the Lord, but we're strangers and pilgrims and a pilgrim means that we're temporary. So not only are we not from here, we're not staying here long either, okay? So both are applicable for the life of the believer, strangers and pilgrims. We're going home, and we're going home soon. So I know the Lord purposely uh, sometimes lights a fire under our feet or kind of picture, you know, putting a spatula up under your feet to keep you hopping a little bit because he doesn't want us to get too glued to this world, into the things of life. He keeps us hopping. He keeps us with circumstances and situations that he orchestrates in our lives or to keep us looking unto Jesus, to look at the things that are unseen, to look at the things that are eternal because we're not going to be here for long. And if we invest everything in this life and all of our attention and all of our our strength and our, our hearts fixed on everything in this life, we're going to be sadly, sadly disappointed. I've even heard uh, some preachers say there's going to be half the church crowd that's disappointed when the rapture comes because they were looking, you know, to what they were going to do tomorrow, the house they were going to build or whatever it might have been. And God wants to keep us as strangers and pilgrims. And so we're also a theme in this book to me I see is that we're not to be content merely with being saved. And there's nothing mere about salvation don't get me wrong but as a believer we're not to be content with merely being saved and said my name's in the lamb's book of of life my name's written on that roll when i die i'm go to heaven my sins are forgiven we can rejoice in that every day but the lord wants to bring us on again we get to philippians chapter 3 and we see that paul is in this pursuit of the lord even though he's born again he's pursuing after the lord and he says, everybody that's like-minded ought, you know, ought to be of the same mind and be pursuing the Lord. We're not to be content just with being saved. We're, we are to be all that God has created us to be. We ought to walk in the fullness and desire to walk in the fullness of all that the Lord has for us. And so just real quickly, some of you might not have been here uh, last week. I'm not going to go over everything. But Philippians was a European city, what's now Europe, okay? And it was the first European uh, city 
that had the gospel brought to it. The Macedonian call. The history of this, if you really want to read the history of it, go to Acts chapter 16. We read some of it last week. It's interesting to correlate that. You know, this is where Paul was in one city and he had a, a vision of a man saying, come over here and help us. And it was a Macedonian call. And he knew it was the Lord, and so did the people that worked with him and served the Lord with him. And they immediately set out to go there. And when they got there, there was no synagogue. There were some people praying by the river. There would have been faithful people that were uh, seeking after God and wanting to walk with not an idol but with, with the Lord. But they hadn't heard the gospel yet. And Paul um, and those with him, it was Timothy, Silas, we know for sure, with him. Uh, they went there, and that's where they met Lydia. They shared the gospel with her. She got saved. As, first, as far as we know, she's the first convert in what is now the continent of Europe. It's really an amazing thing. And so Lydia was, was saved, and uh, then Paul and Silas were uh, preaching the gospel, and there was the fortune teller, right, the lady fortune teller that brought her, her masters a lot of money. And after some time, uh, Paul rebuked and cast the demon out of her, and she's no longer a fortune teller. She's no longer used by the devil to, uh, to make her master money, and that brought problems. Paul and Silas were beat. They were thrown in jail, and God miraculously rescued them from jail. But he says this. You don't have to turn there. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, verse 2, Paul says, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. So it's really amazing that this, this epistle to the Philippians is filled with such joy, seeing with what Paul went through and those that were with him went through at this place. He wasn't, they didn't roll out the red carpet for him. Now, the church didn't treat him bad or badly, but the, he, was, he suffered greatly while he was there. And uh, Philippi is this city that was, it held an important location geographically because it, it was set on one of the main uh, travel routes, I guess you would say, from Asia, connecting Asia to Europe, that people would pass through here. And as we said last week, it became a center of Christianity. It was known as a center of paganism and Bacchus worship. It was a Roman colony. It became known as a center for Christianity, because a wonderful, wonderful church was, was started there. So a lot, several of, of Paul's epistles, he's having to rebuke churches. We know the church in Galatia. They're still a church. He still loved them, he, but he had to rebuke them because of their belief in, in this mixture of Christianity and Judaism and, and falling off into a false doctrine. He had to rebuke them and set them straight. In Corinth, in the first book, uh, first Corinthians, he had to rebuke the church for their worldliness, their immaturity, their carnality, their failure to judge things that should have been judged, and so forth, and and other things that were going on in the church. But in this epistle of Philippians to the Philippians, there was no rebuke. There's no real rebuke to the church, which was a wonderful thing. It was obviously a strong church. They were very loyal to Paul. They were very faithful to God. Um, and so the letter reflects that his true love for them and friendship and is filled with doctrine. It is filled with a lot of doctrine. And it's just amazing that this Philippian church, being so young, 
was able to, to comprehend such doctrine because there's some deep things in this epistle that we're going to read. But when we think about it, it's not that unbelievable, unbelievable because the Holy Spirit is our teacher. Amen. He teaches us and guides us. So let's read the first couple of verses here. Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, this was a common salutation or greeting from uh, from Paul in his, in his epistles, and he talks about grace and peace, which we'll get to in just a moment. But it's really amazing. This church, and, and I never thought of it that way till I started studying, this church was founded, the first three converts we know of was Lydia, the seller of purple, a fortune teller who had to have demons cast out of her, and uh, the Philippian jailer. I mean, this is how the church got started. I think about the grace of God, the people that he saved, the people that he, he uh, changed their lives and gave them new life in Christ. So he says, Paul and Timothy. And Timothy was with Paul in Acts 6, chapter 16 when they first went there, when they received the Macedonian call and brought the gospel. Paul was uh, discipling Timothy and bringing him along. He was with him on this first uh, trip to Europe or to, to Philippi. He calls them both servants. He identifies himself and Timothy as servants. Now we hear that word all the time, but the word servant, Paul used that regularly for himself. I'll just read this from 1 Corinthians 7, 22. Uh, for he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise also that he's called being free is Christ's servant. He wasn't physically a servant in the sense that he was a slave because the word servant means bond slave. That's what it means. It means bond slave. But he says, I'm called in Christ and I'm a slave to the Lord, even though I'm a free man. He was not literally a slave to another man. He willingly and joyfully was a slave to the Lord and identified himself and Timothy as being that. And we that's almost foreign because of the thoughts that we have historically about slavery, you can hardly think of anything worse. You know what I mean? But, but it's different if we're slaves to some, some person or somebody that's wicked or somebody that just abuses you and so forth. And there's a huge different in, difference in that and being a servant of the Lord. Being a, willingly, it's a, something you willingly enter into. And there's a couple of like, illustrations, I guess you would say. This would be almost going our parable context. And I'll just read this from Exodus 21.5. And if thy servant, now this was, this was laws, uh, Jewish or Hebrew laws for owning servants and slaves and that sort of thing. If your servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free. Then there were some things he could do where he literally stayed the rest of his life where he was. And that's kind of how I feel it is with the Lord. I love my master. I'm not going to go free from this. Paul's saying I'm willingly a servant of the Lord. This is not somebody that's beating you like the Egyptian taskmasters beating the Hebrew slaves, saying more, make more brick and we're not go gather your own straw and, and you know keep making bricks. 
it's not like that with the Lord. There is a service to the Lord, but it's in joy. And serving the Lord is not like any earthly kind of bondage. We're willing, we have a choice, right? We have a choice to give our lives to Jesus. And having seen the Lord and how glorious he is and beautiful and kind and gracious and being the Savior, we say, I'm, I love my master. I don't want to go free, so to speak, from him. I want to serve him. There's another verse uh, in 2 Samuel 15. And the king's servant said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. King's servants were ready to do whatever the king appointed. And Paul had proved that. It doesn't mean he was sinless, but he had proved that. So when he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, uh, he's, he knows what he's speaking of. And again, he's rejoicing in all that. And he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Just so you know, the word saints means set apart or consecrated. Now, in the Catholic Church, they vote from time to time to make so-and-so a saint. Do we agree that so-and-so meets the qualifications of sainthood? And they'll saint somebody. They'll crown them with that, that name and make them a saint. But the Bible says that all that are born again, he gives the name saints. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to be something special in that sense. It has to do, again, the word saints. He's writing to all the saints that are Philippi. This would have been the Philippian jailer. This would have been uh, Lydia and others that we don't know. But he called, he says, you're saints. And oftentimes in the New Testament, the believers called saint. It means set apart and consecrated. That has to do, y'all, with our position. We talk about it. Bef- we've talked about it before. It's important to distinguish. Distinguish when we're studying the Bible, and thinking about, you know, doctrine and so forth. The standing, the positional standing that we have in Christ as being holy. I always use the example. Somebody's. Uh, it just makes such a good example. You meet somebody in prison, uh, in prison ministry, and maybe they're fresh off the streets. They're just thrown in the city jail, and they were in the middle of a drug deal. Maybe they got alcohol on their breath, whatever, and you lead them to Christ right, right at that moment or very close to that moment. They are, in one sense, as holy as they'll ever be. In one sense, in their positional standing in Christ. They, when they gave their life to Christ, just like you and I and every believer, they, were, they passed from death to life. And they were outside of Jesus. Now they're in Christ Jesus, right? That doesn't change. That's our literal position of where we are in the Lord. Now our behavior and our conduct and our speech and our mindset and our practices and outwardly, that has a lot of work to do to really be sanctified and holy. So they're two different things, and we need to understand that the Bible describes them as being two different things. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, I think it says in 1 Corinthians, called to be holy. The definition of the words might be the same, but our positional standing in Jesus, because He's holy, because He is our righteousness, we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. It might still reek of alcohol, might still... You know, understand what I'm saying. Their life hasn't even had a chance to be cleaned up. That thief on the cross, when he was saved, he was, he was set apart in the Lord. 
He was a saint. He was sanctified. But every believer after we're saved is called to be holy in all manner of what? Conversation, behavior. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that you abstain from these different things. So your position in Christ doesn't change. You wake up tomorrow and you say, I sure don't feel saved. Well, you are saved. If you were saved before you went to bed, you're, you're saved when you wake up in the morning. Your position in Christ hasn't changed. Do you have things in your life that need to be uh, purified, that need to be worked on, that need to be uh, set apart to the Lord, that need to be repented of, that need to be forgiven, that need to be under the blood, that I need to die to? Absolutely. Absolutely. We did a whole series on the cross, right? But just understand that when he, it's not bragging and it's not unbiblical to say we're saints. You're saints. If you're born again, you're a saint. You're set apart unto the Lord. But you're called to be holy. There was one uh, commentary I was reading. I thought it was a good quote. He says, the name saint and the nature of every believe, a believer should coincide. <laughs> in other words, you would call yourself a saint and be in con consecrated in Christ. And your behavior, your nature should coincide. They should go together. So... And we're in Christ Jesus, all right? That's what he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That's what makes us a saint to start with. So what does he say? Uh, with the bishops and deacons. I'm not going to spend much time on this at all. But I think it's important to know these things. I don't just want to gloss over it as though it's unimportant. Bishops and deacons, okay? A bishop was an overseer, a superintendent. Or a pastor. So he's very much talking about, could be speaking to the pastors of the church, the leadership of the church. A bishop is an overseer, a pastor, a superintendent. A deacon has a position in the church as well, not sister. It's better than the other. They're just different. The deacon would have been a servant. He would have been a minister. He would have been one of those like Stephen and Philip and those guys in Acts chapter 6. They weren't apostles. Um, but that doesn't mean they couldn't preach. A deacon can be a teaching person as well, a teaching minister as well, able to teach the Word of God. Certainly Philip did. Certainly Stephen did preach the gospel, and he was stoned for it. Philip was used to bring revival uh, to Samaria. And so it's not one's lesser or anything. It's just different positions, okay? And so he's writing to the all the saints, and he specifically uh, says, with the bishops and deacons, and his salutation is grace be unto you and peace. He used this in his epistles. These are not just nice little terms like, you know, I don't know, sincerely, Randy, you know, where you sign it. He, he's got some, there's all has some meaning to it. Grace and peace unto you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk about the grace for just a minute and the peace. It's not a whole lesson on grace, but I do want to talk about it. Um, the, the grace of God uh, doesn't change, but the grace of God can be useful in our, our lives for different things. In other words, there's grace for salvation. When you were lost, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith, right? So there's definitely grace for salvation. That would be... Uh, the most important grace for salvation is still the grace of God. 
okay? Unmerited favor, we've heard. It also is the divine influence upon a heart and its reflection from the life. So it's the influence of God upon my life and how he's working in my life and how it uh, bears fruit, how it returns back from my life because he did a real work in my life and it comes back out for the glory of God. The divine influence, divine means the Lord, upon a heart and its reflection from the life. So there's grace for salvation without question. The Bible says, but we see Jesus in Hebrews 2, who was made a little lower than the angels, talking about in his incarnation, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. He did that by the grace of God, the Bible says. So there's grace for salvation, and there is grace also for uh, the working of God in our lives and for the work of the Lord through our lives. Just real quickly, we all know the passage in Titus 2, 11, where the, the, uh, Paul says, but the grace of God that bringeth salvation, the saving grace, right? The grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us the denying ungodliness and worldly lust. Now we're not talking about salvation, right? We're talking about the grace that brings salvation now teaches us as believers the denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that's not necessary for salvation. Salvation is, is turning to Christ, faith in the Lord. We're saved by His grace. But that same grace that saved us, that has appeared to all men, by the way, even though all men are not saved, uh, teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live. Now it's like a should. It's something placed on the life of a believer. You should do this. You ought to do this. This is in obedience to Christ. Don't run from things like that. Just face it straight up. The Bible says His grace is the one that helps us to do it. His grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. But the grace also teaches us something else because the next verse says, looking unto Jesus, uh, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. All of that is by the grace of God. So when Paul says grace and peace be unto you from our Father and the Lord Jesus, these are not just little uh, phrases that are thrown out. Paul said, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace, which was uh, grace, was not bestowed upon me in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, by the grace of God that was with me. And so God's grace for salvation, God's grace to teach us how to live. Here we see God's grace to empower us to serve. He says, I labored, but it wasn't just me laboring. It was the grace of God in me and through me and for me. We need to be thankful for the grace of God. Amen. Then next he says, grace and peace. Well, we all know what peace is. There's peace with God, and then there's also a peace from God that he gives us in our hearts. Peace with God. We were enemies of the Lord before we got saved. If you're here today and you're not born again, Jesus loves you as much as he loves anyone else in this room. Christ died for you as much as he died for anyone else in this room. But you don't have peace with God until you're born again. You don't have peace with God until you're in Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But having been saved, even if you don't feel very Christian at the moment, and got really angry today and it sinned and you had to ask God to forgive you as a believer for sin, we still have peace with God. We still have peace with God. 
when he looks at the believer, he only sees, he sees us under the blood of Jesus. That's how he sees us. If I just lied five minutes ago to get out of trouble at work or uh, get out of trouble at school, I lied to my teacher, well, then repent. Confess it to God. Go to the teacher and say, teacher, I lied. I'm a Christian. God convicted me of it. Would you forgive me? Do that, but you still have peace with God. You understand what I'm saying? It has to do, again, with our standing and our position in the Lord. So there's a peace with God. And having been made and brought and reconciled unto God and having peace with God, he also gives us peace in our hearts, amen, and in our lives. Aren't you thankful for it? I can tell you right now for myself, if I did not have the peace of God in the things that of life, my personal life, I'm sure many of the things are similar to your, your life. Some are different, but most are the same. I would go out of my mind. If I did not have the peace of God in the, the day in which we live, and, and the environment in which we live, I would go out of my mind. I don't know what I would do if I didn't have the peace of God to keep me from doing something harmful to myself, to someone else, uh, to keep me out of a mental institution. And I really mean that. If it's not for God's peace, it is a fruit of the Spirit. It is real. It's not denial. It's not that we go around in denial, denying that things are really bad in the world around us or denying our circumstances or denying the cancer that's in my body or whatever it may be. It's, it's a peace of God that passes understanding. And Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. He leaves it with us. He gives it to us. Okay? Not as the world giveth, giveth, giveth I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So this is not just peace with God. This is peace to the believer from God that you could never put a price tag on. It's so valuable for our lives. Peter said, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So that tells me with our knowledge that we have now of Christ as Savior and Lord and in growing in that growth, growing in that knowledge of the Lord, we're going to we're going to experience that peace. We're going to have more peace. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. It's all about the Lord. That grace and peace doesn't come from anything else or anyone else. It comes from the Lord. Your, your friends aren't going to bring it to you. Your circumstances aren't going to bring it to you. Your, your wealth, your health, nothing is going to bring you grace from God. And certainly nothing's going to give you peace other than the Lord. It comes from the Lord. It comes only from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's keep reading. Verses 3 through 5. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, uh, for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, you see a, the, the, his prayer life for them. Paul prayed for these people. That was part of his calling as an apostle. It was part of his calling as a minister to pray for these people. In Thanksgiving, he, sa he says, I uh, thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer. Thanksgiving and prayer go together. Y'all know that? Thanksgiving to the Lord and prayer go together. We ought to be thankful. We ought to lift up songs to praise and thanksgivings of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. But Paul genuinely loved these people. He was thankful for them. 
uh, they were not a burden to him. They were not a bother to him. All those crazy Philippians, I can't, you know, they, it was, they were, he loved them. He, when he thought of them, it was joy. Every remembrance of them was joy. Does it mean they were perfect? No, they were not. But when he thought of them, he thought of them in Christ, and he was prayed for them, and he prayed con, uh, joyfully, thankfully, and continually. He continually prayed for them. When it says here, your fellowship in verse 5, fellowship means partnership, participation, communion. Partnership, participation, communion. A lot of times we'll say, we're scheduling a church fellowship, and I do it, and I say it, and we think it's just flipping burgers out there and playing volleyball. That is, that is important. It's wonderful. But we're fellowshipping together right now, even though we're not, you know, just hanging out, playing volleyball and eating. This is fellowship. This is fellowship and in Christ, in the Word, with other believers. You have your private time with the Lord all through the week. You have your times with the body. They're important. The times with the body are important. That fellowship is important. True Christian fellowship is an integral part of Christianity and walking with the Lord. Amen. And, and, and honestly, I th the more I think about this, we're, we're to be fellowshipping with the whole body, our local body, and as God gives us occasion with other Christians as well, but not just our little clique, even within Cornerstone. I think we, the Lord helps us to do pretty well with that. But, you know, everybody, even if it's not your best buddy, to be in fellowship. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, uh, after the day of Pentecost and, and 3,000 got saved through the preaching of the gospel, they continued steadfastly. You know the verse, Acts 2.42? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. That's the four things that are mentioned there. They continue, and we, you know, we think of fellowship, again, as just we're going to go eat ice cream and go bowling. Well, there's nothing wrong with that either, okay? But this is fellowship. Being with the body is important in fellowship, partnership, uh, participation, communion, okay? Let's keep reading. This is the verse I really want to, uh, to spend the, the, the last little bit of time tonight on is verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is a blessing. That is like this promise, this guarantee that we have from the Lord. It's guaranteed right here. It's a promise of the Lord that he cannot lie. Well, what is he saying? Being confident of this very thing. The confidence means to, and it's a long definition, but they all mean the same thing. It means probably what you think it would mean. Being confident means to convince, true or false, to convince by argument, to give evidence, to give authority, to rely upon, to agree with, to be assured of, to trust, to obey, to persuade. So all of that is what Paul is saying. Look, I want you to rely upon this. I want you to trust in this. I want you to be convinced of this, that the work the Lord Jesus Christ has begun in your life. When you got saved, he began to work in your life. He saved you, but that wasn't the end. That was, that was the beginning of your relationship with God, and it was the doorway that brought you into Christ, and now he's working in our lives. And, and honestly, if we can look at our lives and we say, well, I prayed 
eight years ago to give my life to Jesus, and we can look and say, I don't see ev any evidence today of a changed life, then we need to really get before the Lord and make sure we're born again. Because if we're really saved, God is absolutely doing a work in our lives. By his grace, by his spirit, he's working in us to make us more like Jesus. He says, be confident, be convinced of this by argument, maybe for argument from the scriptures, argument of the Holy Spirit, convincing you that this is true. Be persuaded. Uh, and Paul might not have had in a sense, and it's a lot to be uh, confident in, uh, about in one sense. And since I, I've heard it said by other Bible scholars, they believe that Paul was not uh, anything real special in the natural it's not a criticism. It's just a, a fact. You know, we think of someone like Samson, probably, you know, big and strong. Or we think of Saul. We know he was head and shoulders above King Saul, uh, head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. And he must have really looked like a king. Paul was nothing special uh, in the natural. And it, it, it actually, it says in 2 Corinthians that this, the Corinthian church was saying his his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is contemptible. Now, they, we don't see the church of Philippi saying that about him. But the point is, he was still confident, not in anything of his fleshly ability. And you've probably heard this as well. A lot of Bible believers, uh, Bible scholars believe that the Apostle Paul was blind or going blind. I don't know if that's actually the case. We don't know that for a fact, but uh, there are some th things that give us a hint towards that in towards the end of some of his epistles. But the point is, his confidence was not in any of those things. And it's so different than the world where you, your confidence is in your wealth, your confidence is in your stature or what you've achieved or how many people like you or respect you or think you're the best or uh, physically your strength on the on the, the football field or whatever it may be that you just stand out and and I'm really confident in this because I excel in this. I'm better than everybody else at this or than most people at this. And that's really not the basis of the Apostle Paul's confidence, nor should it be ours. We're to be confident of this very thing that he which has begun a good work in you, that's Christ the Lord, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so the work that he's, he was do, he's doing, he's doing in all of our lives. <clears throat> and, he's, and Paul wanted these believers to be confident of that. And I just had a few thoughts that the Lord's never going to cease to be your Savior. And sometimes we get, whether we let the devil lie to us, whether we listen to our flesh, whether we listen to some Christian that's way out of into some false doctrine, and we listen to it, we give heed to it, or read their book, and we start doubting what we shouldn't doubt. We start doubting God, His love for us, His, his sa power to save, and so forth. He's not going to cease to be your Savior, all right? You don't have to worry about that. God's not going to abandon you or me. He's not going to cease His gracious working in your life, and that working is not to make you wealthy or something like that, that working is to conform you and me to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the work. You can be absolutely confident. You say, well, I sure don't feel a lot like Jesus Christ. Well, 
Ask God to help you. You know what I mean? But be confident of this thing that he's not going to stop doing that. He has promised that that is his work. In Romans 8, all that he foreknew, he predestinated in Christ to be conformed to the image of his son. He will not stop that work. So whatever good work he's begun in your life, if he's given you boldness to witness, he's going to keep giving you boldness to witness. Whatever he is doing, it's a good work. And we need to be confident and rely upon it. I think, and I'm bringing this to a close in just a moment, but Paul said, uh, Paul said that uh, I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep me, uh, keep all that I've committed unto him against that day. He knew it. He was persuaded. It makes a difference in your life. And I'll just tell you this. It makes a difference in your life as a Christian when you're convinced of that. When you don't just hope it and wish it. And gosh, I hope it's like the Bible says. But when you know it in your heart of hearts, God's working in me. I don't need somebody else to tell me he's working in me. The Holy Ghost bears witness with the word of God. He's working in my life. He might show me things I need to repent of. He might know, show me things I need to stop doing. He might show me things I need to start doing. But that's just part of his working in my life. Amen. We can be confident of that. And so the saving work that the Lord began, the sanctifying work that the Lord began in you and in me, he is going to perform it. What I'm supposed to do is to look unto Jesus. What is he called? The author and what else? The finisher of my faith. Author means like the creator, the initiator of it. He authored my faith when he saved me and brought me to himself. And he is so-called the finisher of my faith. It's not him being the author and me being the finisher. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen. And I praise God for that. In the last little phrase, he says, how long is God going to do this work? He's going to perform it. He's going to perform this good work until the day of Jesus Christ. I think it's very obvious to me in other times that phrase is used in the Bible. This has to be the rapture of the church. This is not the second coming. The work of Christ will continue in our lives until the church is raptured. To you and I are raptured. That would be like our crowning day. It's all going to climax at that day. Faith will end in sight. And that's where we're going to see the Lord. That is his appearing. Amen. That is his appearing. The rapture is the appearing of Christ. And I just want to read this, this scripture real quickly. For what is our hope, Paul told the church at Thessalonica, what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? This is the rapture of the church. And this is where uh, the Lord is bringing us all to this place. And the, the suffering, which you hadn't talked about a lot tonight, Paul's writing from prison. He suffered many things at Philippi. Uh, all of it is surely going to end one day. And all of it is surely going to be rewarded by the Lord. And we need to be confident in that. It makes a difference. As I said, when I did that series uh, a while back earlier this year on uh, our glorious future, it makes a difference that we believe that. It makes a difference that we think about, you know, wait, eternity. What God has for me in eternity is worth it. I'm not going to give up and throw in the towel now and turn from Christ and walk away like 
the rich young ruler, like Jesus had 70 disciples and then all left but 12. I'm not going to do that. We're close to the, the finish line. And even if I'm not, I'm not close to the finish line, it's still eternity, what he has for us. And we can be confident he's going to bring us there. No wonder the apostle could face death as he was at this moment when he wrote this in the jail, in the prison in Rome and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. No wonder he could say that because he was confident. He didn't hope and wish. He knew. He was convinced of it. I'll close with this, this one scripture. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, 58. Now after this whole long cha uh, chapter about the gospel and our resurrected bodies we're going to have and the rapture, he talks about how glorious it's going to be. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know, this is that confidence that Paul was talking about in Philippians 1, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's a lot of things we do in our life that are in vain. They're pointless. We spend a lot of time, effort, energy, and money on in their vain, their vanity. They're going to come to nothing. But our labor in the Lord, being steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, we can know for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen? And we can be confident of that. Father, I just we just come before you tonight, God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for the confidence that we can have in you, that we can trust in you, Father. And Lord, I thank you for everyone here that's born again. If they just got saved yesterday, if they've been saved for 50 years, however long, God, we're saints in Christ Jesus, and you are performing a good work in us. And you're going to finish that work. You're going to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, God, we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we can be confident in that. I pray you give your people great strength and faith in this hour that we can rely upon you and trust in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Altars are open if you just want to come pray and thank the Lord for a little while. Maybe you've been fretting and not trusting the Lord. And you say, I want that peace, that grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I need that peace in my life. Just come and ask him. Call upon the Lord. He, he gives every good and perfect gift. Amen. And he desires to do that for you in your life. Thank you, Jesus.